Welcome to Yarn and Design, a podcast on educating professionals and beginners alike on relevant topics in agriculture, food policy, and food systems. My name is Samantha Vrella, and I'm a Master of Environmental Studies candidate concentrating in urban landscape design at the University of Pennsylvania. Today we're going to be discussing climate impacts on food, notably how the effects of climate change affect our food systems and how food systems affect climate too. The first article that I'm going to be reviewing is titled The Effects of Global Climate Change in Agriculture, and it was published in the American Eurasian Journal of Agricultural and Environmental Science in 2008. A little bit dated, but I really like the information presented here. I think it just provided some nice background. So it noted here that climate, uh, climate is the primary important factor for agricultural production, and the main interests are findings concerning the role of human adaptations in responding to climate change, possible regional impacts to agricultural systems and potential changes in patterns of food production and prices. So first I want to define greenhouse gas, which is when light enters the earth and ultimately our atmosphere, there are certain gases that block heat trying to escape and this creates a greenhouse effect. If you've ever actually been in a greenhouse, you will notice that it is um, noticeably hotter as well and it's because of that, um, that material is being trapped. So the greenhouse gases highlighted in the article were carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. These gases have a high global warming potential, and while they are necessary in our atmosphere, it's their abundance that is causing an unprecedented warming rate. The primary source of these gases comes from human activity, with agriculture being one of the largest contributors. Uh, Findings from the article noted that methane has the highest global warming potential at about 300 times the potential of carbon dioxide and about 20 times that of nitrous oxide. The main sources are nitrogen fertilizers, flooded rice fields, soil management, land conversion, biomass burning, and livestock production and associated manure management. The livestock industry accounts approximately 5-10% to of the overall contribution to global warming. Uh, Agricultural facilities contribute approximately 20% of the annual increase in human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. So to discuss uh, a little more on the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, the article noted that improved land use application from decreased fertilizer use and appropriate fertilizer application and better management of rice paddies, including a shift from traditional to high-yielding varieties could be helpful in this. There's also a Time article published in 2019 called What We Can Learn from the Near Death of the Banana. It notes here, the banana as we know it may also be on the verge of extinction due to Panama disease. This is also called Fusarium wilt, if you've uh, ever heard that. And it continues by saying, the situation led Colombia, where the economy relies heavily on the crop as it does in several other countries, including Ecuador, Costa Rica, and Guatemala, to declare a national state of emergency in August, uh, noting August of 2019. Daniel Beber, who leads the Banana X research group at the University of Exeter, commented, the story of the banana is really the story of modern agriculture exemplified in a single fruit. It has all the ingredients of equitability and sustainability issues, disease pressure and climate change impact all in one. It's a very good lesson for us. Uh, So 99% of exported bananas are a variety called the Cavendish, the banana we know and love, and see in our supermarkets today. So although there are thousands of varieties of banana, uh, why the Cavendish? So these are the best variety for traveling long distances, uh, an example less bruising, and they're less seedy than other varieties, meaning that there is a higher ratio of mass to seed in the fruit compared to wild varieties. 
In an NPR interview a decade ago, Dan Koppel, author of Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World, reported, Every single scientist I spoke to says it's not an if, it's a when, in 10 to 20, 30 years. This was in the context of discussing a new strain that would hit the Cavendish hard. He noted it only takes a single clump of contaminated dirt, literally, to get this thing rampaging across entire continents. This reminds me of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, evidently very widespread issue affected us all globally. It was something that really um, caused universal support for us to manage this issue and I think a lot of people came together as a community to figure out what to do a lot of lessons that we learned from this but I will say one of the lessons that I don't see being paralleled between COVID and climate change and I certainly think should be is that climate change is a state of emergency as well it's something that we're not uh, equally feeling the impacts of as severely as COVID. It's not something that's requiring lockdown and your normal uh, functions are being disrupted, but it's something that is very rapidly headed toward a path where functions are going to be disrupted, not only socially, economically, and certainly environmentally, but it's just not being treated as the state of emergency and it's something that's been going on for decades. Of course, climate change is something naturally occurring. And again, that's not what I'm discussing. I'm discussing the fact that uh, the anthropogenic or human caused um, contributions to climate change are something that are really exacerbating the issue at this unprecedented rate. And I think there's just not enough pressure for it to be taken as seriously. And some people excuse it by saying, well, I don't see it today, it's tomorrow's problem, or well, I think predictions are wrong. You know, when I was young, we were told to, you know, fear the end and I'm still here, everything's fine. It's not about instilling fear in people at all. It's just a serious issue that does affect a lot of people. It's going to cause a lot um, more inequity than we see today in terms of food justice um, and children being in poverty and having access to food. So many issues because we're going to have sea level rise, warming temperatures, this is going to lead to climate migration. Where are these people going to go? They're being displaced, right? We're seeing this already in certain parts of the world, certain pockets where it's becoming inhabitable. So it's happening on a smaller scale, but it's going to be occurring in a much larger scale. Of course, this is based on data and scientific um, studies and predictions as well. So of course, we don't, you know, we cannot foresee the future and what advances we've made by that time, but I do think it should be taken seriously. I think it's something that if we all were to act together, we would have more hope. But I think when you study this, sometimes you can really lose that type of hope because there's also a loss of action. And hope is wonderful to have, but action is really the thing that's going to drive us toward that success. So that's just something I think of. It's like COVID was taken really, really seriously. Um, two years and we've obviously seen a massive turnaround with COVID and that's just not the same with climate change. Of course, even if we all were to hunker down, I don't think that quickly we could quote turn it around. I think with the case of climate change, it's just not worsening it. It's not necessarily to mitigate. Uh, It's not really going backward, Um, but we can certainly prevent from worse things happening in terms of emission outputs and um, you know, again, global warming being one of the massive things that's contributing to climate change altogether. So, um, you know, some food for thought, something to think about. And I would love to hear your opinion as well. I mean, what do you think about climate change? Do you think it should be treated as a state of emergency? Why or why not? What can we do? I mean, what are your comments and thoughts and opinions? 
So to go back to the episode a little more, um, the problem, monoculture, we've discussed monoculture so heavily, but if this is your first episode with us, um, to define it, it is the cultivation of a single crop in a given area. This, of course, reduces genetic variation, it makes it easier for disease to spread, and it can be as simple as soil on a worker's boots, but spreading pests and disease from one spot to another. This is actually what happened with the Panama disease or Fusarium wilt with the bananas. And so what happened is when there's one crop, there's less resilience in the system, so disease and pests can easily take over and wipe out the entire operation. As most of our agricultural systems are monocultures, when faced with a pest or disease problem, extinction is not out of the question. It's a very real possibility. And something I also want to note is diversity breeds resilience. I say this all the time. It's one of my favorite mantras, that diversity breeds resilience. And that certainly applies to our food systems too. So the solution or part of the solution, polycultures. To define that again, it's the integrated system for simultaneous cultivation of several crops or kinds of animals. Polycultures, um, by definition, can be two or more crops. I think to have a successful polyculture, at a minimum, you need three crops. When you have three crops, you're able to create something called a guild, and that is the intentional design of three plants that have mutual um, relationships with one another, so they're able to benefit one another. So when I design a polyculture, certainly it's a minimum of three crops, usually much more, but it doesn't have to be. You can be very successful with just that guild. And so uh, characteristics of polycultures, it introduces diverse genetic material and this increases resilience in the system. Again, diversity breeds resilience. Mutually beneficial relationships are fostered when plants are thoughtfully designed and introduced in the system. And as the species can benefit from one another, the system starts to be inherently regenerative these disease and pest issues naturally decrease. Polyculture is a type of agroforestry, agro meaning agriculture for food, forestry, forest setting. You're growing food in forest setting. An example of food forest. I worked in a food forest for several years, uh, teetering on five years. Several people used to ask me like, well, what is a food forest? And they would, and I would tell them, you know, it's this regenerative edible garden. It's awesome. And they would think I'm talking about like, these little vegetable beds, it was literally like walking around in a forest. It was really, really cool. And with agroforestry, you have these seven layers. So you have upper canopy, lower canopy, shrub, you have herbaceous ground cover, you have your root layer, you have your vines, and um, there's one more that I'm, oh, your understory. <laughs> I was like, there's one layer I'm missing. Um, and that's how you design it. And it mimics a forest and the natural layers of a forest. And it's really cool because plants all fit into one of those categories. You know, one plant or another will, um, you know, one will be an upper canopy, one will be that herbaceous ground cover. So it's really, really cool. So it literally is growing food in a forest setting. Um, it's really awesome if you ever get to experience that. And I certainly hope you do. So I'm going to move on now to a sustainable food trust article that was published in 2017, and it's called Agroforestry, an Opportunity for Sustainability. It quotes here that the practice of agroforestry has been described as a win-win approach to management as it offers the opportunity for multifunctional land use, which simultaneously benefits food and fuel production, environmental and biodiversity protection, and allows farms to adapt to or mitigate the effects of climate change. Um, I want to comment a little bit here. Mitigation, although I don't, it's really difficult because to mitigate kind of implies that, yeah, we're going to 
it's almost going to be regenerative, right? We're going to have it better than it was because we're going to kind of get rid of some of this nasty uh, effects that we've seen. It's really difficult with climate and I'm not going to dive too deep into it, but as you can imagine, it's really difficult for us to even contain the current situation, let alone make it better. Um, now they have something called carbon credits, and that is something that is aiding with carbon sequestration, especially with a lot of your companies. Really interesting. I would certainly look it up. I might have an episode on that later if you're interested, where I can discuss carbon credits and what that looks like from an economic standpoint, as well as environmental. Um, but Mitigation certainly is possible, it's something to strive for, but I do think it's really difficult. So I think adaptation is really the one thing that needs to be uh, further addressed and something that needs to be taken really seriously today. And as well, talking about this multifunctional land use. I love that. I love talking about multifunctions. I love talking about layering functions and what that is. And that's very similar to those guilds where you have these mutually beneficial relationships you're layering the functions of the plants. In this case, you're layering the functions of the system, whether that's nitrogen sequestration with carbon sequestration, with microclimates, uh, whatever it is. You have food production. You also have this type of water retention. I mean, it can be so many things. Uh, certainly, if you have animals, that adds a whole other layer to it. But I think it's wonderful. When you design, you certainly want to design with several functions in mind. If you're gonna have a piece of land, whether it's just in your backyard or whether it's on this larger scale, you wanna make the most of it, right? It's the same if you wanna look at it from an economic standpoint, you wanna make the most of your money, right? Why would you buy, you know, let's say five ounces for $3 of juice, right? And you could get 10 ounces of juice for $3, well, why wouldn't you do that? Well, it's the same with land. You want to make sure that you're designing to maximize all the benefits that are there. You really want to take advantage and so i just love this idea of layering functions because when you start to design um and you can be everyone is a designer i think everyone is capable of that but when you start to see the world and you start to see land this way and these systems certainly food systems it's really cool because you start to realize oh my gosh there's so much biodiversity and ecological function just in this one small spot that's really cool i just really want to emphasize multifunctional land use it's awesome in learning to layer these functions and think in a way, change your mentality to start thinking in a way about how to layer these functions. Really valuable. And so the benefits, of course, of polycultures as opposed to monocultures is that they include decreased levels of soil erosion, improved soil fertility, favorable microclimates. Microclimates are defined as a climate of a smaller restricted area that differs from the climate of a surrounding area. Usually this happens when you have a lot of upper canopy and lower canopy becomes very shaded. And so even though the overall climate might be tropical, subtropical, when you enter that microclimate because there's so much shade, um, um, it's much cooler and so that's what I mean with you know climate of a smaller restricted area differing from this overall uh, climate or this overarching climate for wherever you you may be living polycultures also offer enhanced biodiversity increased resource use efficiency this means less resource input and also waste output and reduced nutrient runoff and this is Again, um, in the primary article, it is noted as the main source of methane release contributing to global warming. Now to move into the impact of climate change on agriculture. 
The climate change effects on agriculture will differ across the world, and certainly that's true. Cl uh, changes in temperature as well as changes in rainfall patterns and the increase in carbon dioxide levels projected to accompany climate change will have important effects on global agriculture, especially in the tropical regions. It is expected that crop productivity will alter due to these changes in patterns of pests and diseases. Suitable land areas for cultivation of key staple crops will undergo geographic shifts in response to climate change. So the United States Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, is experiencing a shift in planting zones moving north, affecting what farmers are planting. The USDA has a planting map, so you can look it up. You can look at where you live, and it'll uh, have like this number letter combination. So like Southwest Florida is 10A, 10B, depending on where you live. Um, and that kind of helps guide what you can plant. And so essentially these planting zones are moving north. So to prepare for the future, uh, we need to use scientific data and models to guide planting and also consider what may no longer be able to grow in a certain climate zone despite past success. Some people in the um, agricultural community are really focused on, you know, this has been a generational thing or I've been doing this for decades. I, you know, love what I grow. It's going to stay that way but they're noticing that they're not having as much success as they have had in past years. Why is that? Because already these impacts are being felt. Certain things that might have been, for example, heat tolerant, now as temperatures are really increasing, and you might have experienced this too, where you're like, this is a really hot summer, a lot hotter than I've experienced in the past. Well, the plants feel that too. And so they might not be as tolerant with that increased heat. And so because of that, they might not be producing as high of a yield as you've seen in past years. This is only going to continue to get worse. Um, and of course, more crops are you know, susceptible to this than others, but it's something to take into consideration and to start um, adapting now so that there's not this rush where it's like, well, now I have to learn all of these new plants and where they can grow. And you, know, you have this, again, this kind of state of emergency and this frazzle when we can start adapting now to this. So a little bit about modeling. Um, modeling of climate change impacts for regional food supplies, it is really difficult for a number of reasons, including the uncertainties in regional climate change predictions and uncertainty regarding the potential for adaptation of agricultural practices, namely technology. A lot of people think that technology will advance to a point where we will all be fine. We're not gonna have to worry about this. I certainly do not think that's good mentality to have, um, but I do think, yes, it can be addressed that there may be differences in these models than what is predicted today. We might not exactly see that in the future because things are going to be changing. Uh, advances certainly will be made. We just don't know what those advances are and this type of impact that it's going to have. So take everything you read and hear with a, a little grain of salt. Now there's a 2018 publication by the Columbia Climate School uh, titled, How Climate Change Will Alter Our Food. Um, okay, it notes here, the world population is expected to grow to almost 10 billion by 2050, with 3.4 billion more mouths to feed and the growing desire of the middle class for meat and dairy in developing countries, global demand for food could increase by between 59 and 98%. This means that agriculture found around the world needs to step up production and increase yields. But scientists say that the impacts of climate change, higher temperatures, extreme weather, drought, increasing levels of carbon dioxide, and sea level rise threaten to decrease the quantity and jeopardize the quality of our food supplies. I want to comment something here because I see this all the time with studies, and I think it's why some people um, 
feel that the studies are not necessarily credible. Columbia University, obviously a very credible uh, school, but it did publish here between 59 and 98%. That is a massive disparity. You know, 59% still huge, but 98%, that's a lot more severe. So, you know, you have to um, understand that one study might say 59, another study could say 98. You see this all the time with comparing studies. That's why it's really important to look at the methods that they use to gather this data, because depending on the factors that you're using, some studies have certain factors involved, others don't, um, that can lead to a big disparity. And again, take this with a grain of salt. Like when I read these things, I certainly believe in the science and I take it seriously. But I also understand uh, that there is a big difference between that, between those numbers. And so take that with a grain of salt. And again, it's not to instill fear. Uh, it's to educate on when you research and when you're doing research, how to criticize these uh, articles, how to criticize some of these arguments so that there's more of a balanced outcome, so that there's not this extreme view that's taken because no study is perfect. Data is inherently biased. All data comes from humans, um, even if you're thinking, well, data's coming from a computer, a person had to put in that data. So all data is inherently biased and it's not to invalidate it, but again, learn to kind of criticize it and uh, refer to more than one study or one publication because there is massive disparity sometimes in these numbers. So I, I did just want to point that out because I do see that quite a lot. Um, and I do hear people say, well, you know, they don't even know, you know, these numbers are, you know, so far apart. Um, but again, it's it's not about that because um, it is really difficult to predict some of these things, right? It's to shed light on, on what's going on. So to discuss another study, um, there was a recent study on global vegetable and legume. Uh, legume usually refers to peas and um, plants that can help sequester nitrogen again with that bacteria in their mycorrhizome. And so a recent study of global vegetable and legume production concluded that if a greenhouse gas emissions continued on their current trajectory, yields could fall by 35% by 2100 due to water scarcity and increased salinity and ozone. A 2020 publication by the United Nations Foundation on Climate Change and the Future of Food noted that yield, for, uh, yield growth for wheat, maize, that's referring to corn, and other crops has been declining in many countries due to extreme heat, severe weather, and droughts. By some estimates, in the absence of effective adaptation, global yields could decline by up to 30% in 2050. Again, we're hearing different numbers here, and that's why you need to look at the methodology. What does that 30% encompass? What does that 59% encompass? I certainly implore you to learn more about looking into the methodology of some of these research um, articles and studies so that you can better understand where those numbers are coming from. And so the possible negative effects, climate change could influence agricultural productivity, uh, product production negatively, and this results in geographical shifts and yield changes in agriculture, reduction in the quantity of water available for irrigation, and loss of land through sea level rise and associated salinity levels. There are possible positive effects too. Not all plants photosynthesize or use light, in this case sun, to make oxygen from the absorption of carbon dioxide the same way. So certain plants such as potato, rice, soybean, and wheat are likely to benefit from the extra carbon dioxide. Of course, we discussed how rice patties are a main contributor to methane release, so everything has to be done in moderation. And it really is the abundance that creates a problem. The next steps, preparing for climate change, 
Population growth will mean more land must be used for rice cultivation and other crop production and an increase in the number of farm animals without significant improvements in future yield rates. These factors will lead to an increase in methane and other greenhouse gases related to the release to the atmosphere, and adjustments will be necessary to counterbalance the negative effects of a changing climate. Adaptations such as changes in crop and crop varieties, improved water management and irrigation systems, and changes in planting schedules will be important in limiting the negative effects and taking advantage of the beneficial effects of climate change. More efficient use of fertilizers or improved application using new technology could also help the severity of the effects of climate change. Certainly I agree with that. I will also say um, really difficult too because people um, are estimating, you know, scientists are estimating that uh, meat and beer are going to be something that are only going to be for the upper class because it is going to be so costly. So also thinking about not only the economic impact of it, but certainly the social impact of it. No, by no means to push uh, a vegetarian or vegan diet. There are certainly implications to vegetarian and vegan diets so that's not the narrative whatsoever but to note that these things uh, that we you know may not think twice about when we're buying in the grocery store um you know the prices may not be the same and this is because of the effects of climate change how it's going to impact food and certainly food impacts the economy as well so that's just something to keep in mind now, what can we do? Uh, I certainly think transition from monocultures to polycultures and introduce some of those polyculture principles into food systems. Um, in an article by Jeremy Erdman in 2018, it was noted the world's farmers produce enough food to feed one and a half times the global population. That's enough food to feed 10 billion people. The problem here is that 30 to 40 percent of all food is wasted. For example, India loses 30 to 40 percent of its production because retail and wholesalers lack cold storage. Some people also throw out food because um, it is considered unappealing, it's not aesthetic, and as portion size grows, certainly in developed countries, more and more food gets thrown out and wasted. Um, food can be donated um, using the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act. This is something that establishes federal federal protection from civil and criminal liability for persons involved in the donation and distribution of food and grocery products to needy individuals. So essentially you can donate food, you're not liable if a receiving party falls ill from the product. Never has this had to be used, like there's never been a case of this. So a lot of people are really hesitant to donate food because of that. But keep that in mind, certainly if you're a business owner and you work with food and that's something you're worried about, you may not have known about the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act, but keep that in mind. The EPA estimated that in 2010, 31% of the food supply was lost, and that is a 50% increase from 1970. To wrap this up, I think we are beyond the point of sustainability and we need to look at regeneration and take accountability. This includes education through our institutional systems. I really want to applaud Florida Gulf Coast University for offering a university colloquium course and service learning graduation mandates. This is something I had to go through during my undergraduate uh, career there. I uh, certainly think that the University of Pennsylvania could do this, although they offer academic-based uh, you know, course service learning. It's not a graduation mandate. And I think university colloquium is something that really reaches the entire student population, whether they are involved in sustainability or not. And that's why I think it's really important. I spoke with Penn Sustainability the other day and offered this as a potential for the um, university to adopt. It was 
slightly dismissed so I'm not really hopeful that the university will but I think our higher education institutions need to take it seriously and can certainly model from other universities that have done something similar and there has been success in it. So a lot of people say this too, I'm the only person I can't make a difference. It's about collective action. Yes, it's about that collective action. If every person said I can't, then nothing's gonna happen. But if every person says I can do a little, then we see a difference being made. So it can be really discouraging and really overwhelming when you're first entering this space, but do not be discouraged. We're here to instill hope. You can make a difference. You can do something, whether that is educate, whether that is transition from plastics to renewables in some form of your life, you can do it. And so certain lifestyle changes that I'm going to leave you with, you can start a compost system. This can be done in your apartment. You can work with the local community garden. You can um, grow your own herbs, participate in Meatless Monday. And some cities, if you live in a bigger city, check out composting systems. Some places will pay you to pick up composts. Compost. Uh, some places will uh, charge you a very small fee to pick it up. Um, Boston and San Francisco are wonderful examples of cities that through the city they offer composting. So you have like a trash bin, a recycling bin, and a compost bin. And I'm going to be discussing in a food waste episode um, successes of cities that are you know really taking off and doing some good stuff. But as well, examine your own life. I mean, what is good for you? For me, one of the things that I did, I made sustainable food wrap from cloth and locally sourced beeswax to eliminate plastic wrap waste in my family. It was really cool, a fun project for everyone. We still use it today. The conclusion here, I implore everyone to do their own research, question what you hear, get involved, and be part of the change for climate change. Thank you for listening. I hope this episode helped further educate you on this topic and provide a reliable source of information to question quick headlines and participate in respectful discourse on a subject that affects us all. Until next time, Yardners.